You're listening to the weekly podcast of City Church Orlando, located just off of 1792 at 650 Airport Boulevard in Sanford, Florida. Our website, orlandocitychurch.org. Today, lead pastor Eugene Smith will continue with our series called The Fruitful Life. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Our scripture text comes from Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 11. Today's message is entitled, The Fruit of Discipline. I thought a lot about it uh, over the last couple of days about this whole concept of discipline. And what I've discovered about discipline is that no one likes discipline. I mean, no one really likes to be disciplined. I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, the concept of discipline always meant what? Pain. Come on, you're with me already? All right. But we love to watch a guy like Michael Redd, who has disciplined himself for literally thousands of hours on the basketball court, play basketball. Now, Michael Redd is an amazing story. He was drafted into the NBA at the year 2000. Like you said, he didn't play the first year, but the second year that he played, and for the last eight years, he's, he's been an NBA superstar. He averages over 20 points a game. He's a shooting guard for the Milwaukee Bucks. And God has done an incredible thing in his life. But Michael understands something about discipline. And I am sure all the times that he's been out on the court, he's thought, man, you know what? I'd rather be hanging. I'd rather be playing. I'm sure there are many, many, many times when that coach was pushing him to shoot another 200 or another 300 free throws at the free throw line. You see, discipline in our, in our lives is something that we don't really like to talk about. And when, then when we talk about it in a spiritual context, we either kind of even get farther away or farther repelled from this whole concept. But we've been talking over the last five weeks about bearing fruit. Last week, Pastor Glenn talked about the values, the things that we value, the things that enable us to, to bear fruit. This morning, I want to talk about the disciplines. And some of these things, they cross over, but we need to hear them again. We're going to have some practical application of how we can practically bear fruit in our life today. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, and we're going to read two texts this morning. They're both going to be up on your screen, but I'm going to re-read the screen, uh, re-read the text that we've been using over these last several weeks. John chapter 15, and we're going to read, read verses 1 through 8. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. We're going to read out of the New International Version this morning. And the Bible says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He who cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Pretty scary verse. Number seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Another word for disciples is disciplined ones. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, 
verse number 11. I'm going to read this out of the New Living this morning. It's going to be up on your screen. So if you've got another translation, it might not read exactly like this. But this is basically what it says. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. But afterward, there will be a great harvest of right living for those who were trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands. Stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. Lord, I pray that in these next couple of moments, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, every heart will be open. We thank you that you are so faithful, that as we draw near, as we drew near to you in our worship experience this morning, you are so faithful to show yourself strong and kind and gracious with your wonderful presence. We love you. We thank you that we can glorify you in everything we say and do. Now, I pray for the hearer today, that they will have spiritual ears to hear, but also, Lord, that you will use me well once again, to be a minister of this marvelous message of grace. I ask this now in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, amen. Years ago, there was a young man who felt the call to ministry. Now, this was in the day that that, uh, there hadn't been the Protestant Reformation yet, and so uh, uh, he went to a monastery to serve the Lord. And uh, there at this monastery, he had been assigned to a certain task. And his task was to copy these ancient manuscripts. So as he went to the, as he went to the monastery and he was receiving his assignment from the abbot, he was noticing that there was something a little bit unusual. That all the other monks that were in there, they were copying these manuscripts over and over and over again, but it, it didn't look like they were copying them from the original manuscript. And so as he was looking at it, he, he had a question. He said, excuse me, Monsignor uh, Abbot, he goes, uh, he says, uh, I see that uh, other, the other monks here are copying these manuscripts, but I had a thought. I wonder if, like, one letter was wrong in the manuscripts. Uh, the abbot thought to himself, he said, well, he said, that would be a problem. And so it kind of stirred something up inside of him. And, and they had kept the originals down in the basement of this monastery for literally hundreds of years. And so he said, well, I think I'm going to head on down to the basement. And there that abbot went down into the basement and he pulled out the originals and he blew the dust off them and he began to read them in their original language of Greek and Hebrew. And, and all of a sudden he got to a text. Several hours went by, and finally the, the young monk thought, man, I better go check on the abbot. And so he headed downstairs, and he walked down with his lantern, and as he got downstairs, he saw over in the corner that there was the monsignor, or there was the abbot, and he was banging his head against the wall over and over and over, and blood was coming down. And he said, it wasn't celibate, it was celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Oh, you can clap. Come on. And many times that's how we feel about spiritual disciplines. Oh, it's painful. It's difficult. It's hard. But God has called you and I to an abundant life. Abundant, blessed life. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing we receive from the Father above. God is a good God. But there are things that God requires of us as believers. 
Now, this is a really slippery slope, and, and I get this thought from a guy by the name of Richard Foster. He has written many books, uh, but one of the books that he wrote was entitled Celebration of Discipline. And Richard Foster talked about spiritual disciplines in context like this. He said, basically, there are two ways that we perceive spiritual disciplines. The first one is like a path. And I actually have a bike, a guy on a mountain bike, and he's riding along this very, very narrow path. One side is faith and grace. The other side is works. And you can see that biker, that if he goes off just a little bit off one side, what's going to happen? He's going to go down a slippery slope, and there's going to be a lot of pain in his life. It's the same way in our relationship with Christ. We're serving God. We're on this straight, narrow path. We're on this way that God has called us to live. But if we go off one side, and there's many people that go off on this side of faith, and it's all grace, and we think, you know, we are saved by grace through faith, and we believe that, but hey, that's all I have to do. I don't have to do anything else. Pray Well, you know, I should do that, but, you know, it's not that important. And, yeah, I, you know, I should do these things, give, but that's, you know, really, God understands. And, you know, I got this area of my life, I'm just weak, and I can't seem to get over it. And God knows, and, yeah, God does know, but he doesn't want you to stay there. The other side is works. The other side is works. And there are some people that have struggled so hard, and they just always trying, and they just fall short over and over. They beat themselves up, and the devil starts bringing condemnation on them, and they walk around like Igor, and they're feeling bad about themselves, and life is so hard. And I'm, yeah, serving God, yeah, I'm trying to serve the Lord. It's so hard, but, you know, I think I can make it. Oh, Jesus, I, you know, just another moment. And those are the two extremes that people find themselves in. But God has a way. There is a way or a path that God has called us to. What I've discovered about this spiritual walk and relationship with God, what I've discovered in my own life, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul talks about us running a race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, I want you to see this text. And the Bible says, Do you not know that we are to run a race, that, that we run in a race, and all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do not get it. They do get it to get a crown that will not last. But we do get it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You see, this morning, the, res- the responsibility that God places on us as a believer is that we have to show up in the game. In John 15, Jesus said that you have to remain in him. You have to abide in him. And that's what spiritual disciplines are. Spiritual disciplines are a way for us to stay connected to God. It's how we live. It's our source of life. It's our air. It's our breath. It's our energy. It's our strength. It's our faith. It's our hope. And the things that we do as Christians, they don't save us, but they sustain us, they strengthen us, they enable us to live the life that God has called us to live. Now, I need Mr. Glenn to come on up here. I need your help this morning. And i got to just tell you a little story that happened to our family this week. If you weren't here last week, you know that Pastor Glenn spoke. And 
And past, I did listen to the iPod. I, I did podcast. We do podcast the messages. That you can go online, orlandocitychurch.org, and, and I listened to Pastor Glenn's message, and I actually listened to Christina's message from the week before, and so I was keeping current on what was going on here at City Church, and you can do the same. And uh, we had a really, really fun time. We were up in the eastern Washington. It's on the eastern slopes of the Cascade Mountain, and we were there for four days. And we have a group of city churches around the country that we're in relationship with, and a group of pastors, probably about 40 or 50 pastors met, and their wives. We met for four days, and and uh, we prayed together. We encouraged one another, and we had some times in the afternoon we could take little breaks. And, and uh, we have some friends that live in eastern Washington. They actually live in a town called Clay Ellum. It's on the Yakima River. Now, this couple is special to Laura and I because this couple, literally, they sold their business back in 1998, and they moved with Laura and I to come to Orlando to start City Church. So they're a very, very special couple to us. They gave three years of their life. They had never done anything like that before. They moved their family 3,500 miles across the country to help start this church. And so we really felt like we needed to contact them. And uh, as we were talking to Russ, and uh, they live on this huge, huge, huge piece of land with their family. Got their dad on it and brothers on it. And they have over 300 acres on the Yakima River. And uh, it's a beautiful piece of property. It's got elk and deer on it. And they got mountain bike trails. It's a really, really cool place. And, and farmland and all that kind of stuff. And, and Russ said, how would you like to go rafting down the Yakima River? And sure, that sounds like a blast. And so we had a couple of hours, and, and Russell, well, I got a couple of rafts. Why don't you bring Laura and Keenan up and, and Lee and I, and we'll go ahead and we'll raft down the Yakima River. And so we were, we were excited about it. And, I mean, it's, it's really hot this time of year in eastern Washington. It's about 95 to 100 degrees, but the water is really, really cold. As, and you want to say, how cold is it? Very cold. Very cold. As a matter of fact, it's about 95 degrees outside, and the water in the river is about 45 to 50 degrees. Everyone say, wow. yeah, how about very cold? <laughs> yeah, very cold. And uh, so we were going to get in this raft, and Russ gave each of us one of these. What is this called again? It's a life jacket. So Eugene puts on the trusty life jacket. I buckle it up, and, and we each... Uh, Eugene had one of these, and you're Keenan. Keenan had one of these. I sat in the back, and Keenan sat in the front. Poor Laura sat in the middle, and she got whacked between the two of us the whole way down the river, but she did survive. And uh, so we were going down, and it was, you know, the river's going maybe four or five miles an hour, and uh, it's got a pretty good pace to it. The water's freezing cold. And, and I kept telling Laura, I said, okay, now, Laura, Keenan, remember, there are no Disney guides on this river. And I should have been, I was probably talking to myself, but, you know, I said, no, remember, this isn't a Disney. And Laura said, let's say it one more time together. You know how she is. Let's say it one more time. There's no, there's no Disney guys on this river. And so we get in the raft, and we're pushing ourselves downstream, and we're having a great time. And we get about two miles down, and it's really hot, and I decide that I don't need what? What? I don't need the life jacket. Hey, I can handle this. This is no problem. I just set that life jacket right down there at the bottom of the boat. And so son is just like his father, and he pulls his life jacket off. And we're catching some rays, and we're just too, we're, yeah, we're just, we're just basking ourselves in the sun, and we're floating down the Yakima River, and it's, yeah, very cold. And we're going down the river, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't even want the, the water to splash me. It's that cold. 
And so we're going down the river, and, and Russ told us when we got in, he said, now there's one place on this river to get off. And if you don't get off on this place, the next place uh, that you're going to end up is over this fall. Because the river came to a place, and there was a drop-off. He said, there's all these warning signs. Stop, get out here, don't go any farther. Now, though it's, they had a lot of snowfall. They had the dams open, so the river is not only running fast, but it's very, very high for this time of year. And so, you know, we're going down. He said, now you're going to see this railroad trestle. When you see this railroad trestle, you've got to push as hard as you can and go to the right. And that's your exit. So we're cruising down. I'm just laying back, and I see the railroad trestle. And, and so Keenan and I, we never quite got in sync together on how to row this boat, just row this raft down the river. And, and so we start paddling. Well, he's paddling up in the front, and I'm paddling in the back. And we just start going in circles. And I'm still thinking, oh, we got plenty of time. The next thing I know, Russ is coming off the shore, and he's kind of come out and getting us. But we were no more than 100 feet from, I mean, we weren't getting closer. We were getting farther away from the shore. So now we're starting to get a little nervous. Now, Keenan jumps out of the boat, and he's trying to pull us over, and he doesn't have us. And so I reach out with my, with my paddle, and I bring Keenan back in. I'm starting to get a little nervous now. And so we get back in, and so now we're, start, now we're all paying attention. Isn't that right? We're all aware. We're looking for the Disney guide. There ain't no Disney guides out there. And so we get to this next little spot, and we try to get over, and we couldn't get over. Now I'm starting to get really, really nervous, and we just start trying to make our, and we get ourselves closer to shore. We're pushing our way over. We're getting closer to shore, and we see a little opening kind of by these railroad tracks, and Laura says, we got to go for that. And so we get close to it, but we're starting to go by. And all of a sudden, I realize I got to get out of this boat. And so I roll myself out of this boat. Now, it's amazing when your heart's racing at about 400 beats a minute and you see your life flashing before your very eyes. You don't even feel the water anymore. And Laura grabs onto that branch, and she caught that branch with her lip, and, and she's hanging on for dear life, and I'm on the side of the boat, and I'm hanging on for dear life, and we're pushing our way. And, and by this time, I don't feel nothing. I can care less. I just want to make it to the side. And, you know, I did survive. Amen? And I'm here Sunday morning. And it was an experience. And what I realized in that experience is that, listen, there were some guidelines that I needed to follow. There were some things that I needed to do, and it really didn't become aware to me until my life was in danger. It really didn't sink in how potentially serious that moment could have been. Afterwards, I was thinking, that was crazy. What in the world were we thinking? What was I thinking? I'm the leader of the ship, man. I was ready to go down. Let's give Glenn a big hand. Thanks, Glenn, for coming up. You see, they give you a life jacket to save you, to preserve you. In case there's danger that comes your way, when you got a life jacket, my life jacket never made it back on. And the whole time I'm thinking, what in the world are we doing? Now, Russ and Lee, he'd been down that river many times. Guess what? He wore his life jacket all the way down the river. Safe soldier, playing it safe. But I like to be adventurous. I like to risk, reach out a little bit. And sometimes that happens in our spiritual walk. God has given us a life preserver. God has given us spiritual tools for us to grow and to come to a greater understanding of who he is in our life. And we just, we throw it off. We think we can do it. We're smarter. We're better. Oh, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. I want to talk about these spiritual disciplines for just a few moments this morning. The first thing that I've discovered about spiritual disciplines is that it's a choice. It's a choice. 
to get in the game. It's a choice. You choose. You choose to serve the Lord. Joshua chapter 24, 3,500 years ago, Joshua says this to the children of Israel. Here's a mighty man of faith. Here's a mighty leader of God's people. And he's been with these rascals for a long time. And they've been up and down in their relationship. They serve God and they don't serve God. It's going good and then it doesn't go good. And they complain and they whine about their problems and about life. And finally, Joshua just stands up and says, listen up, dudes. This is the way it is. You can serve God or not serve God. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We are going to serve God. We are going to go for the gold. See, everyone is running some kind of race. Everyone's running some kind of race in their life. They are. You're running your, your race for possessions. You're running your race for relationships. You're running your race for success. You're running your race for some kind of meaning. I mean, everyone's running some kind of race. But there's only one race that you can run and receive the prize that will last forever. And that's the race of a relationship with God getting in the game. So you got a choice. Everyone here has a choice. God doesn't make anyone do any of these things that we're going to talk about today. You have to actually do them. You have to actually get up. You have to actually do something in your life. God doesn't just drag you along and say, okay, open your Bible today. Okay, get out your checkbook today. Okay, open your mouth. He doesn't do any of that. He created you to be a free will agent. You have the power to choose. Now, God is so merciful. He's continually reaching out to us. He's showing his love. He allows, like Hebrews 12 says, things to come into our life that are tests, that work themselves out to be disciplined. And if we allow them to work in our life, they produce beautiful fruit. But they're never easy. It's never easy. I don't know anyone that has it easy. The church that we're connected with in Seattle is a huge megachurch. Huge megachurch. Huge megachurch. And they are doing so many things well. And the senior pastor of the church is 59 years old in the prime of his life and has to turn the church over to his son because he's got stage 4 bone cancer. You see, it ain't easy. Oh, he's had a lot of success by the world's terms, but his physical body is saying, you're done. It's an attack of the enemy. I mean, it isn't easy for anyone, folks. But you have a choice to make. The second thing that I've discovered is that very few people make the right choices. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for where, for, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Another, the easy way, not to live the disciplined life, not to live the Christian life the way that God's called us to live is easy. It's way easier. You see, you have an enemy. You have a war. You remember we had Brother Cubit Malone a couple of months ago, and he talked about the war within. You have a war going on within you, a struggle, a battle. Paul the Apostle called it his flesh. In Romans chapter 7, he says, the things that I do are the things that I should not, and the things that I want to do, I don't do. And then he says, oh, what a wretched man is I. You see, there's a battle going on inside of you. It's the same, and you can take this in any area of your life. You can take it in your financial area of your life. You can take it in your physical, your eating habits. You can take it in your exercise patterns. You can take it in all these things that you know that you should do that are good for you. There's a struggle with inside of you whether you'll do them or not. And whether you do them or not many times determines how successful you are in those areas of your life. But there is a battle. There is a struggle. And Jesus recognized this. Jesus recognized the struggle within people. 
And he said, listen, there's a really narrow path. But if you get on that path, it's the path to life. It's John 10.10. The thief cometh to kill, steal, and to destroy. But I've come to give life and to give it to you more abundantly. There is a path of blessing. There is a blessed life. There is a life of love. There's a life of joy. There's a life of peace. There's a life of patience and gentleness and goodness and self-control, the very fruits. But these all flow out of this love for God, this love for God. You see, it isn't about working harder for Jesus, but it's about staying connected to the Lord. It's about staying connected to the vine, and you're the branch. And when you fall down and when you make mistakes, You get back up, and you run back to the master. You run to Jesus. You're quick to say, God, I'm sorry. I surrender. You see, this struggle inside of you is all about surrender. Everyone say surrender. The athlete that gets up in the morning that decides, hey, I'm going to be a professional boxer. I'm going to be a professional golfer. I'm going to be a professional athlete. Gets up every day at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning, and they train. They don't train for one hour or two hours or three hours or four hours. They train for many, many, many hours every single day. I was watching a video a couple of weeks ago, and there's a professional golfer by the name of Gary Player. He's from England. He's won a bunch of tournaments. He's a, he's a great golfer. And, and Gary was saying, you know, I was out with some guys, and we were playing golf, and he said, this one guy says, hey, Gary, man, I wish I could swing like you. I wish I could hit the ball like you. He said, you know, I'd heard that so many times from so many people. I finally said, you know, I can't take this anymore. He said, I turned around to the guy, and I said, no, you don't. You don't really want to play golf like me. Because if you wanted to play golf like me, you would have went out last week and you would have hit a 1,000 golf balls in three hours. You would have hit so many golf balls that you would have blisters on your hands and they started to bleed. And you would go back to the clubhouse and you would wrap your hand up with tape and you would go back out and you would hit another 1,000 golf balls. If you really wanted to do it like me, that's what it would take. Obviously, he has a gift and a propensity towards sports, but it took a tremendous amount of discipline. And this is the hard part because there are sacrifices that we will make. The sacrifice that Christ called the church to was called the cross. You see, the way to life is death. Dying to our own self and our own emotions and our own feelings and our own wants and becoming alive to what he wants. It's a surrendered life. And who said it was easy? It's never easy. But once you understand how beautiful that relationship, how wonderful, how awesome your God is, how much he cares for you, well, it starts to get easier. Not that it's ever completely easy because you're always having to make choices. Everyone here is making choices. We're making choices. The first thing, this first discipline, and there's more than this, but we're going to cover just a few of these disciplines this morning. The first discipline that enables you to stay attached to the branch is prayer. Now, everybody in this room prays. Everybody prays. Everyone in their heart, you talk to God. You know, I've discovered even the agnostics and the atheists talk to God. You think about it. I mean, why are the atheists and the agnostics so dead set in this country of getting God removed from the books and from the educational systems and removed from buildings? Why are they so set on it? If they don't believe that God really exists, they don't believe that it doesn't matter if you worship a toad or a frog or a cow or a building, there really isn't a God. Why do they really care? If it doesn't really matter, because see, deep inside of a person, deep inside of every single human being, there's an imprint, because they were created in the image of God. 
from the time you're a little child, there's something gnaws inside of you. I remember that feeling, wondering, question is, okay, yeah, there's a God, but how do you know? And all those things, all those questions that I had in my life, why was that? Because, see, there was that image. There was that mark of God created in his image. It was dead. It was going to become alive when I surrendered my life to him. But, but it was there. You see, and as a believer today, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest expression of our love to God is talking to him. Now, prayer is not complicated. Prayer is not complicated. Prayer is basically talking to God. But not just you telling him what you want. It's also God talking to you. See, it's a relationship. If you're married to someone and you're the only one that does the talking, it's not a relationship. If you want to have a relationship with a person and you like this person, you look across the room and you go over to them and you just talk the whole time, you're going to leave that conversation thinking, man, I said way too much. Has anyone ever left a conversation and said, boy, I said way too much? Anybody ever do that? Of course. We've all done it. Boy, I wish just shut my lips. But it's talking to God. And look what Jesus says here. When you pray, go to your room. And when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He'll reward you openly. He'll reward. The public rewarding of God comes from private times with Him. Well, it's not complicated. You can pray while you're in your car. You can pray while you're in your home, in your kitchen. You can pray while you're in the shower. You can pray while you're walking down the street. But there is something about having a place designated in your life. For me, it's the back bedroom of our home. It's where I go every single morning. Every single morning, I get up, I walk the dog, make a pot of coffee, go into the back bedroom, I take my Bible, and I pray. And I'm praying I'm more dependent on the Lord today at 46 after serving Him for 22 years than I was 22 years ago. I'm more in need I can't miss my quiet. And the times that I miss my quiet times, I feel just like you. It doesn't feel quite right. My day, things happen. I, you know, I don't handle things right. So prayer is simply talking to God. But there's also public prayer. And the Bible talks about it. And public prayer is so powerful because you move into a different dimension. Now you're adding not just your own voice, but you're adding the voice of others. And the Bible calls it the prayer of agreement. And Jesus actually said that. He said, listen, when you pray, where two or three are gathered together and you're in agreement and you pray concerning anything, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. And when you gather together in my name, I'll be in your midst. See, that's the powerful part. You come together in agreement. And there is the supernatural power of Christ released in your agreement. It's called the prayers of agreement. And so you can pray together. You're believing. We practice this all the time at City Church. We practice this in our family. We practice this in our home. My wife and I last night, we got an urgent uh, 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 email from a friend of ours who's going through some really difficult times. And we took hands and we just prayed for them. We didn't have to pray a long time, but we just prayed for them. They're in a desperate situation. They're in a very difficult trial right now. And we prayed, and I could feel it. I could, the moment my wife and I prayed together, power was there. If you're married to your spouse, and for a lot of husbands, this is really hard. It's really, really hard for us as guys to do this. And most of it is just the enemy who has blinded us, and he's, he's tried to keep us from the spiritual power that can be released in our homes and our life that releases great blessing. But there's, it's so simple. 
You don't have to get a shout on and start, we glorify you, Lord. You don't have to do that with your spouse. You can just take their hands and you can pray. There's public prayer. In the Bible, all throughout the Bible, there were times of corporate prayer. There was private prayer where men got alone with God, and like David, and cried out, God, save this poor man and deliver him out of all of his troubles. And there's those prayers, and absolutely, but there's also powerful corporate prayer. Last night, we had 35 people that prayed for an hour and five minutes, and we prayed. And in this room, the presence of God, it was powerful. I don't know what happened, but I know that there is an unseen world. I believe in an unseen world more than I believe in the seen world. I believe that there are forces of the enemy that are against you, that hate you, that want to destroy your life, destroy your family, destroy your destiny, destroy your children and your future grandchildren. I believe that more today than I ever have. I believe it's an unseen world. And the battle that I fight today is not against an individual. It's not against a political party. It's not against a lack of finances and my money. The battle that I fight today, the Paul the Apostle said, is a spiritual battle. And it will only be won by spiritual power and forces. And so we come together in corporate prayer. And we're praying for this city. And it's powerful. Probably the greatest act of prayer that you will enter into as a believer is prayers of intercession. I begin to think about this. Every person that God considered a friend, every single one of them was an intercessor. You know what an intercessor means? It means one who will stand in the gap on behalf of another. You see, something happens when you turn your prayer life from praying from yourself to start to pray for other people. All of a sudden, your problems don't seem that big. The friend of mine that we prayed for last night, the unemployment in their community in Palm Desert is almost 50%. His income in his church in the last six months has dropped 75%. He hasn't been able to get a paycheck for the last several paychecks. Some of you have been in that very place. Some of you experienced that very thing. Not an easy time. And I, as I begin to pray for him, man, my problems start to seem small. The stuff that I was going through, all of a sudden, you see, that's what happens when you turn your prayer life and your focus from yourself onto other people. And it's the highest act of love that you can demonstrate, not only to God, but for your fellow man. And that is to pray for other people. That's what City Church is called to do for this city. We're called to pray for people that are outside of faith, that have all kinds of problems and hurts and challenges. We are called as a congregation to stand in the gap on their behalf because someone did it for us. I have there several practical applications you can read for yourself. Spiritual breathing, having a set time with God. Attending a prayer meeting once a month on a Saturday night, what would it kill you? One time a month. I mean, just once a month where you can pray with other people and pray for the Spirit and the power of God to move in a community and a city. The next thing that I want you to see this morning is Scripture reading, memorization, and Bible practice. Joshua, who I just spoke of earlier, said, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Reading your Bible. You know, the Bible is the most loved and the most hated book in the world. The Bible had blood spilt to get it printed into every language that it's ever been printed in. The Word of God is powerful. The Bible is so powerful that nations have tried to keep it from entering into their communities. The Bible is so powerful that people have shed their blood to see that it was printed so that you and I could read it. The Bible is so powerful that the words of the Bible are living. They're active. They're actually the words of God. And they're a love letter to you. And as you begin to open that Bible, 
You see, the challenge that we have, I don't know about you, but the challenge that I had as a, as a kid, I'd read the Bible and it didn't make any sense. We read the Bible when I was a child in the King James. And, and trying to read it in the King James, you know, I'd read, you know, like you know, maybe some of you start off in Genesis and, and you know, you get to like uh, the end of Genesis and Joseph has, you know, got this woman chasing him and then, you know, he he spurs her and he gets thrown into prison and the next thing you know, he gets thrown into the palace and he's the second most powerful person. You see these intriguing stories and then you go to Exodus and the plagues on Pharaoh and Moses is leading the children across the Red Sea and all these kinds of things and then you hit Leviticus. Bam! You're done. I mean, that's what happens. You start to read, and then you start to read things that doesn't make sense. You read about ancient cities and people and, and places and mountains and all these things, and you don't understand it, and so you just maybe have a couple of places that you read. But see, ignorance isn't a virtue. And the Bible has commanded us that we are to be students, that we are to be disciplined ones who study to show ourselves approved. Acts chapter 17, verse number 11, it says the people at Thessalonica were more noble. In other words, they were more of, their character was better because they studied the words of this book to see what Peter and John and Paul said to them were true or not. They took time. And it takes time. You've got to shut the TV off. You've got to get some education. There's so many tools available, guys. There's so many, so many tools. John Wesley, who lived about 300 years ago, probably the most influential Christian since Paul the Apostle, he used to tell his people, he'd say, listen, guys, read one chapter from the Old Testament, one chapter from the New Testament, a psalm and a proverb. Just make it simple for you. Get CDs. There's, you can download the Bible for free in just about every translation on the Internet, and you can put it on a CD or a thumb drive or put it in your iPod. I mean, there's so many ways today. And a translation that you can read and understand. It's powerful. It'll change your life. Setting aside things that we love. This is called fasting. This is the abstinence from food, from water, or sex for a short period of time. Learning self-control and to be the masters of your own bodies and emotions. Now for a married couple, you abstain from sex from just a short period of time. Because if you don't, you'll give in to your flesh and you'll do something that you don't want to do and it wasn't the way that God created you to be. And if you're a single person, you're not fasting, you're just staying pure. You're staying pure and you're saving that act, that beautiful act of intimacy for that relationship for the, for the person that God has called you to be with, with for the rest of your life. The wife for life, the husband, the spouse that God has designed for you. But God's called us to these things, setting aside food, water, and different things. But what I've discovered about fasting in my life is that I don't, it isn't just these things at times God will require for me to fast. There have been periods in my life that God's required me to fast from coffee. I was drinking too much coffee, and the Lord asked me, would you give coffee up for me? Of course I would. Simple thing. You know, that's just, that's silly. But I had someone come to me just recently and said, you know, God spoke to our family. We were to give up the Internet. We were to give up television. I've got periods of time, months at a time, where I didn't watch television. I just fasted the television. There are all kinds of things that you can do in your life. They say, you know what, God? I'm really serious at this moment, at this time in my life. I want you. I need you. You read in the Bible. And people of God, and specifically the text that I have here is a man by the name of Ezra. And the situation for the children of Israel was desperate. They had gone back to Jerusalem, and the city had been destroyed. They had no place to live. The king was against them. 
And so listen to what he says here. Ezra chapter 8, the Bible says that so we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us. And he heard our prayer. There's something powerful about consecrating your life for a short period of time. A day. Three days. You, maybe you have an area of your life, man, you just you keep coming up against it. Keep bumping up against it. And it just can't seem to get breakthrough. A three-day fast from food. Most of us, you know, you can go three days without food. It's not a problem. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of information. Bill Bright's written a book on steps to fasting that you should get if you're going to endeavor and move out into this area that will help you get a plan, a strategic plan to help you walk through this strategy for your life. Number four, sharing community. Sharing life together in community. Getting connected to a group of believers who you can live life together with. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the Bible says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. And they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Having a group of believers, other Christians that you're in relationship with, that you can pick up the phone and say, hey, I need you to pray for me. A group of people that in this community, you could go to their house, you got a time of need, or you set aside a time weekly where you meet to study the Bible or talk about the things of God or just have fun together, just live life together. Guys go out and play golf. The girls go out and go shopping. But having a group of believers that you can connect with in a deeper relationship and grow in your relationship with Christ together. Someone outside of just your immediate family. And several things happen in that dynamic. One is that you begin to be able to serve other people and begin to love other people and see the beauty of the expression of the body of Christ and the diversity of the way God operates and works in people's lives. But you also find spiritual strength. From ancient of times, people have always lived in community. It's only in this modern age where we get into a car that's all closed in and put in our tapes and drive to work and hang with certain people and then go home and never even talk to our neighbors. It's only been in the last 100 years or 50 years. But the body of Christ is called to community, to fellowship and relationship. And we have lots of small groups that are listed in our bulletins. And and you can create groups. You can start groups. We have people that will help you to do that. But it's so important, this spiritual discipline of community, the most powerful experiences that I've had with God didn't take place inside of this church building. They took place in my home. The most powerful things that I've seen take place didn't didn't take place inside of a church building. They took place when people were sharing life together and praying together, encouraging one another. The fifth thing that I want you to see this morning is the spirit of generosity. The spirit of generosity. Everyone say generosity. This is giving of your time, your talents, and your financial treasures so that you will not love money more than you love God. I'm going to say that again. You see, because if you're not a generous person, if you're not doing what the Bible says, then Jesus said you only have one or two masters. People have one of two masters, not just in America, but every place in the world. People either love God or they love money things that money can buy them. Money buys them relationship. Money buys them influence. Money buys them sexual favors. Money buys them drugs. Money buys them the best seats at the basketball court. Money buys them influence. Money buys them hanging out with the right people. See, people love one or two things. They love God or they love money. 
And really, this issue of tithing and giving to God is about the issue of who you love. Do you love God? Or do you love money? See, when you love God, and you love His kingdom, and you love His purposes, generosity isn't a problem. Oh, man, when the Bible says, God says, I want you to tithe the first 10% of all your income, and when you do that, I will open the windows of heaven. I will pour out a blessing that you cannot contain. You'll say, yes, that's mine. I believe. You see, when the Bible says, and I sent out an email to all of our leaders in our church last night because the Lord so put this on my heart. All the times in the Bible that God talks about giving to the poor. I couldn't even count them. There are so many times that God talks to us as a church, as a people, about giving to others that are in need. I mean, it isn't one time. It's literally hundreds and hundreds of times. God talks about giving to other people and helping meet the needs of other people more than he talks about baptism, more than he talks about communion, more than he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, more than he talks about just about anything you can think of. You see, because it's the heart of God. God gave his best. God wants to give you his best. But if you close your fist and say, God, I just can't believe that. See, it's really, it's up to you. See, you make the choice. The blessed life, the generous life. I'm going to brag on one of my guys here. Pastor Dave this last week was at a restaurant. Saw a guy across the room and picked up his tab. Just paid his bill. Never met this guy in his life before. Just paid the guy's bill. Paid his dinner. The guy was totally blown away. Couldn't believe that he did that. Guy went online, filled out the application. Dave talked to him. They're going to get together. He said, man, you know, I, I do web design or whatever, and I can help you guys with the church's website, and he does that for a living. And he said, man, you guys really are fulfilling your mission. The mission of City Church is to bring God's love to the city one person at a time. You see, that's the heart of God. That's the heart of this church. This church literally gives thousands of dollars every month to other ministries so that we can support the poor not only in this city but around the world to help missionaries share the gospel, to help people who are printing Bibles and giving tracts out and building buildings. It's the heart of God. Guys, this isn't about me. It's not about me. And see, the enemy is such a liar and deceiver. People get all twisted up and all the church wants is your money. And that pastor, they just talk about money so much. And because, see, there's only one or two gods in your life. There's the God of gods, the King of kings, or there's money. That's it. I mean, it's pretty clear. But God loves you. You see, and you're in your relationship with him. That area of giving is not a big deal. You just trust him. And so you give, and then the Father provides your needs. And he supplies, even when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, he said, I will never leave you. He'll be there for you. He'll carry you. David said it like this, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. So the choice is up to you. The release of God's provision in your life is up to you. You either close your hand or you open your hand. It's all a matter of faith. And so I'm going to close with this this morning. It's the area of service because it's really the heart of God. But how service works its way out practically at City Church. You see, God's called us to be a servant. Jesus said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life for many. I've given my life. Someone asked me, how did you become a pastor? Did you go go to school? Well, I did go to school. But you know what happened? When I got saved, I went to my church, and I said, can I sweep the sidewalks? Well, the pastor said, well, we, we pay somebody to do that here. Well, can I clean the bathrooms? Well, we have a janitor that does that here. Well, can I? I mean, he couldn't even figure out what a job for me to do because they had paid people to do everything. 
I just wanted to serve. I said, well, I know something you can do. You can do nursing homes. And so I started serving in a nursing home. And every week I would go to the nursing home. My wife and I, every single week, we'd go to the nursing home. And we'd preach. And I told you guys this story. You've been around. You've heard it. And I, then they said, well, can you go to this other nursing home over here? And then I went to the second nursing home. And then we got a phone call from another nursing home that wanted to know if we would start a Bible study. So here I am. I'm working with the youth ministry, and I'm working a full-time job, and I'm doing three nursing homes. I'm not getting paid to do this. No one's giving me a dime. The, the thought of me being paid to do that was like the farthest thing. It wasn't even a thought in my mind. I never even had that concept before. I just served. I said, God, you must be doing something in my life. And I went to a, a youth camp, and I was serving. I was working with the youngsters, and, and I was just passionate to see them saved. And I fasted all week long for these kids in my dorm who didn't know Jesus to come to faith in Christ. And, and I was just serving and blessing, opened my heart to serve other people. One of the guys said, man, there's something different about you. you got to go to Bible college. So I went to Bible college. Sitting in the Bible, what do I do? Only thing I knew to do was to serve. I just had a heart to serve, to help people. I just wanted to help people. So I started helping people at school. And is it ever easy? It's never easy. There's distractions, and you get frustrated and angry and mad at God, and God's doing stuff in your life, and you're trying to work it all out. But one day, one day I was sitting in a church service, and God just spoke to me. It's like God just spoke to me. Ask of me. Ask of me for the nations, and I will give them to you as your possession. And then the end of the earth for your inheritance. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. God spoke that to me. It was so clear. God, You know what's so cool? Is that God spoke that exact verse to my wife at the exact same time. It was amazing. And something inside of me was released. And within just a few short months, my wife and I were starting our first church with another couple in the inner city of Seattle. Never thought to get paid. It was the farthest thing from my mind. But I love people. I want to serve. Serve. I was sitting in a church service listening to a pastor by the name of Tommy Barnett. Tommy Barnett was talking about the needs. In our church, we were an inner city church, and we were small, and we weren't very big, and we didn't know how to grow the church. And, and, and I was sitting there listening to Tommy. And Tommy started talking about the children that they bust into their church every week. The homeless people that they went out and got and brought them in and fed them a meal. The AIDS people who nobody else wanted to be. And this is back in the 80s when churches were saying, we don't want AIDS people to come to our church because they might infect us. And they went out and they got a bus and they started bringing them in. And then they went to the nursing homes and they got another bus and they brought them in. Then he started talking about the bikers that people in his church started ministering to. And they went down and started hanging out with the bikers. And then they started ministering to the bikers and bringing them to church church and then he started talking about I mean all these different and all of a sudden he said and if you want God to do that in your life I want you to come to this altar I was the first person to that altar Glenn there no one I said no one's going to beat me to that altar and I ran and I remember I literally dove into that altar and I said God I want that I want that and over a period of time God led me in ministry and different things happened in my life and 1998 God spoke to me and said I want you to go to Orlando I mean, it's just through amazing stories and events. We came here. Our church was four months old. Church was four months old, and we were small. We were 45 people, and I was so hungry to see people saved, to bring God's love to the city. I get a phone call, just like Dave got just a couple of months ago. There's a group of 25,000 people who are affiliated with the Assemblies of God that are going to be in Orlando August 3rd through 7th or whatever the dates are. 
25,000 to be down the convention center. Just like we had worship today, they're going to be worshiping like that and preaching and people encouraging one another. Pastors from all over the world and missionaries are going to be meeting and talking about how they can take this love of God. And they called us and said, hey, we got some kids that want to come and serve in your community. And I said, all right. And so we were in Altamont Springs in a movie theater at that time. The movie theater seated 500 people, and, and we were 45 people. And that was when you drug everybody in. You made the nursery workers come and sit down. I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking tops. And we took those 38, 40 young people and their, and their leaders and about 15 or 20 young people and some leaders from our church, and we took God's love to the city. We started handing out bottled waters. We went into the restrooms of the businesses all around the mall. And I remember it was the funniest thing going into this business and say, hey, can we clean your restrooms for free? And the people are like, what are you talking about? Some people would, some people wouldn't. But we held up prayer cards. We prayed for people on the streets. We handed out bottled waters. We started knocking on doors and inviting people to church. And all of a sudden, God exploded at City Church. The biggest growth that we've ever had is when we took it to the streets. Pastor Dave, three months ago, got a phone call. See, God's called us to go. We love the presence and we love the experience that we have on a Sunday morning inside of here, but we don't really become a church until we take it out. We don't, because see, Jesus said, go into all the earth and tell people the good news. Go, therefore, to all the world and baptize, immerse them in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and tell them my hope. And my message of good news, go. Man, we took it and immediately we grew. I mean, literally not just by tens. We literally grew by hundreds, hundreds. And within one year, we had 400 people in our church. It's a fact. True story. Last five years, we've been in Sanford, you know, and it's good struggle. And, and I've had this in my heart. God, I know that you want this to be our church. I know that you want us to go out. You've called, That's who I am. That's my DNA. That's the way you've made me. I love people. I don't care how much money they have or don't have. I don't what color, color of skin. I don't care what kind of addictions they have. I don't care. I don't care. I can care less because God loves them. God's going to clean them up just like he's cleaned you up, changed your life. And Dave gets a phone call. We got 88 young people that want to come and bring God's love to the city of Sanford. Like, wow, we're primed. We're right on the edge of a spiritual, not just numbers, guys, but a dynamic of God's power. You see, two weeks ago, we baptized 12 people or 14 people, whatever it was. God is working here. People are getting born again. People's lives are being impacted. They're being changed. Your life is being changed. But God wants us to take it. See, what the enemy fights so hard against on your spiritual disciplines, the enemy tries to shut your mouth. He tries to keep you so frustrated and so many challenges and so many problems that you just, but it all just starts. It all just starts with a simple word, surrender. God, I surrender to you. God, I love you. Help me, God, to love you better. Help me, God, to love people better. God, I want to know you. And so you open your Bible and you begin to discover who God is and how great he is and how powerful he is. You see, the problem for most of us, myself included, is our God is too small. God's too small. He's too, he, we put too many limitations on God. He, oh, God, I know you can, but will you? <sighs> You know the only time that God, when he walked on earth, couldn't do miracles? You know when God couldn't do miracles? is when people didn't believe. 
Jesus always rewarded faith. People who believed that a God who is unseen can make the impossible possible. That's what he always rewarded. When people got together in groups and they started praying for one another, encouraging one another, lifting one another up. When someone fell down and made a mistake, they came around him and said, hey, you can make it. You can do it. When they started giving in Acts chapter 4, listen, you can read it for yourself. The love of God was so great, they just started giving away. There was no need or lack. They just loved one another. It was working. They were reading their Bibles. They were living a generous life. They were serving people. And the city took notice. The people took notice in the city. They weren't fighters. They weren't haters. They were lovers of God. Thanks for listening to this message, The Fruit of Discipline, with lead pastor Eugene Smith. For service times and more information about City Church Orlando, please visit our website anytime at orlandocitychurch.org or call 407-321-9600.